Please bow with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we're in need of your word. We're in need of wisdom and and mercy and peace that comes from your throne this morning. And so we turn to your word. Where else can we go, Lord? And we pray that you'd humble us. We pray that you would capture the attention of our minds and hearts by the amazing truth contained in your word. Lord, I pray you'd help me to preach faithfully and to preach clearly that your son Jesus would be exalted, that we would be reminded of how much you've loved us and your son Jesus. Lord, we pray that as we hear the truth of your word, that you would shape our hearts to grow in our love for you and to grow in loving one another. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, do you have to choose between truth and love? You've heard that theme this morning. We've been talking about truth and, and love. And we're talking about the truth of God's Word, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're talking about the love of God, holding the truth and loving one another. They're inseparable. Why would we feel any tension between the two. We do, if we're honest, we, we, we often feel a tension between what it looks like to love a family member or a friend or a co-worker and to share the truth about Jesus. We often feel that tension even in our ministry to one another here in this church, of what it looks like in discipling relationships, to guard one another, to, to, to carefully walk with the Lord together. But is there really a decision that needs to be made between the two? Well, consider that a real love for truth leads to a real love for others. Right doctrine, it should produce a love for others. The more you know the Bible, the more Scripture you have memorized, the more theology that you understand the Bible, the test that if we really get it, if we really understand it, is that we're growing in our love for God and our love for others. Learning the Bible isn't just about being able to win Bible trivia or be the one who wins the award for most memorized Scripture, or even being able to correct someone on Twitter for bad theology. It's not the point of learning the Bible. The point of learning the Bible is that we'd be humbled by God's love, and that God would produce in us by the power of His Holy Spirit a love for Him and a love for others. And we'll see this morning in the book of, of 2 John that we should love one another in a way that lines up with the truth of God's Word. We'll see this morning that truth and love, they're distinct, but they're inseparable. Turn with me to 2 John. We're going to be there this morning. If you want to use your Bible in front of you, take that Bible and turn to page 1025. Page 1025 in the Bible. And We say this every Sunday. If you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home with you. That's our gift to you, so use it here this morning during the sermon, and then take that home. We'd love for you to read more about the Bible and learn more about who God is and what He's done for us in Jesus. 
I'm going to read through this in just a moment because this is a, a new sermon series, so we're taking a break from our semester in Genesis. Our plan is to return, Lord willing, in August and continue on in Genesis, tracking through Joseph and the life of Joseph and through him to the end of Genesis. But our plan this morning is to be in 2 John. So we want to cover different books of the Bible here in our time at Oakhurst. We want you, if you've spent a considerable amount of time at this church, to hear different books from the Old Testament and the New Testament and different genres in the 66 books of the Bible. To hear those covered in our time this morning. So this morning we're in the New Testament. We're in a New Testament letter. Now there are 27 books in the New Testament. 21 of those books are letters or epistles. And of those 21 letters or epistles, eight of them are considered general letters or general epistles. General meaning they they weren't written by the Apostle Paul. So 2 John, we see right there in the name of the book, it was written by John. Now there are a number of people named John in the Bible, but these letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written by John, the son of Zebedee. You can read more about him in Mark chapter 1. Jesus called him and his brother James among the first people that Jesus called to follow him in his public ministry was John and James, the son of Zebedee. So right after Jesus called Peter and Andrew, he called John and his brother James. And you may remember the story from Mark chapter 1. They got out of a fishing boat where they were mending nets, left their father behind to follow Jesus. Now John was an apostle, a pillar of the early church, an apostle meaning he was handpicked by Jesus himself. He was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he was the last surviving of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. So the last man standing, John. And he's writing to churches here in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, giving them direction on how they can faithfully follow Jesus and serve him. Now 2nd and 3rd John are among the shortest books in the whole Bible. So at an average reading pace, they can be read in about two minutes. So if you've never read through a book of the Bible, oh, we're going to read through one today, Second John. And then if you want to take two more minutes sometime today, you can read through Third John. It only takes two minutes. In fact, there are a number of books in the Bible you could read at an average reading pace in less than 30 minutes. So some great summer reading. Pick out some books in the Bible and try to read through them that you might know God more and what He's done for us in Jesus. Now the common thing, theme among the letters of John it's living in the truth. So 1 John, 2 John, 3 John all have to do with living in the truth. And here in 2 John, he focuses in on living in the love of God in accordance with the truth of Jesus Christ. So we see that love and truth go together. I want to give you the main idea before I read through 2 John. If you're taking notes this morning, the main idea of this sermon is this. Following Jesus is a pursuit of truth and love. Following Jesus is a pursuit of truth and love. Let me read for us through this whole letter, 2 John, starting there at verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. 
I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one as the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. It's the book of 2 John. As we make our way through this letter this morning, I want to answer this question. How are we to live together as a church? I'm going to answer that question this morning. It's how the Apostle John, he's writing to a congregation. He's instructing them and even warning them about how to live together as a church. And we'd be wise to consider the same question this morning. How are we to live together as a church? In our outline, there's going to be two parts to answer this question. Let's consider the first part there in verses 1 through 6. Love one another as you walk in truth. It's the first way we're to live together as a church. Love one another as you walk in truth. Now, letters have greetings, and here in verses 1 through 3, we see the greeting. And John refers to himself as the elder, so that the New Testament officer or office, excuse me, for leader of the church is elder. So rather than saying his name, he identifies himself by his pastoral role in the life of that congregation, which, which shows the relationship that he had with the recipients of this letter. And we see that relationship displayed also there at the end of verse 12 when he says that he keeps this letter brief, about two minutes to read it, he keeps it brief because he wants to go see them and talk with them face to face. Now, the greeting continues as he addresses the recipients of this letter as the elect lady and her children. Now, that may sound an interesting person to write to. This elect lady, though, is, is not a literal woman, but a church. So, he's, he's using a, a metaphor here to write to a church and its members, the church probably located somewhere in Asia Minor. Now, the context of this letter shows us this is written to a church. You'll see starting in verse 6, we're going to see him speaking in the plural. And then there in verse 8, we see the direction to watch yourselves. He's speaking there again plurally to a church. They should watch one another. So he's writing to a group of people, a particular congregation, a local church, by using the metaphor, the elect lady and her children. Now, through both the Old and the New Testament, the people of God are often referred to as a a woman or 
a bride. So he employs that metaphor here, and then he uses the term children to refer to, again, the members of the church, so children in the faith. Now, the letter closes as well in verse 13 with a greeting from the children of your elect sister. So simply put, another church, another local church, greeting them. Now, in the very beginning of the letter, the inseparable relationship between truth and love, it's introduced. They're distinct, but they are inseparable. Look at verses 1 and, and 2. John describes his love for the local church. He says, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us. And then down at the end of verse 3, we see the phrase, in truth and love, which is used on the heels of John pointing to grace, mercy, and peace, often referred to as the great triad of the gospel. Grace, what God gives us. Grace, all that God gives us that we do not deserve. Uh, Mercy, what, what God doesn't give us. God not giving His people what we deserve. He doesn't punish us. And then peace, our standing before God as a result of His grace and His mercy applied to our lives if we have repented of our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ. These gifts of the gospel, grace, mercy, and peace, they come from the Father and the Son. And John says they will be with us in truth and love, meaning we're, as we hold to the truth and as we walk in love, we will live in a lot of God's grace and mercy and peace from the Father and the Son. Now, in the Christian life, we see here, the truth and love, they are inseparable. Now, truth, again, it refers to the truth of God's Word, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what God has done in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, down to earth to die on the cross and to pay for sins. What God did in raising Him from the dead three days later that anyone who would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus would be forgiven of their sin against God. He's referring to this truth of the gospel, and He says that truth abides in us and it will be with us forever if indeed you've trusted in Jesus. As you make your way through this letter, it's clear that the truth and love, they're not opposed. You don't have to choose between the two. They're they're not at odds. There's no choice that needs to be made between the two. And they, they don't merely sit side by side in tension with one another, like a dad makes two brothers who aren't getting along sit side by side. That's not how truth and love are pictured here. They they go together. There's unity between the two. And since truth and love are not separated here in the Scriptures, they shouldn't be separated in the lives of Christians. So in order to understand what it means to live the Christian life, you and I need to understand love and truth and, and walk in them. Now, John demonstrates this commitment to truth and love even the way, in the way he's pastoring this congregation. Uh, so look in verse 4 and 5. And this contains a helpful example for elders. So so Daniel, Peter, Chad, Johnny, Jonathan, Tim, myself, we could pay attention to what is here in this letter, a good example for us as elders to take note of what John's doing. In verse 4, he rejoices over the church, and in verse 5, he asks them 
to do something. So rejoicing and, and asking, look at verse 4, he's rejoicing that some of your children or members are walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Notice he says some of them, which implies that some others weren't. And I've heard it said by one of my mentors in Christian ministry, Christian ministry, it's, it's just one of these things you can give yourself to. It's never done this side of glory. It's never finished. Think about all the other projects you can give yourself to. Building a home, yard work, projects that you complete at work or at school, the gratification of hard work and then seeing the end result. Well, the very nature of Christian ministry is that you give yourself and you serve and you should see fruit and you should see progress, but my mentor described it like a bouquet of flowers. It's going to have some beautiful flowers in it, and sadly, some ones always there that are dead. You know, at the same time, John's rejoicing, even though some of the members weren't walking in the church, he's rejoicing that some of them were. He was quick to point out evidence of God's grace in the life of the church there. He rejoiced in the evidence of God's grace in their obedience. And then in verse 5, his manner of instructing them was loving and gentle. He says, now I ask you, dear lady. So John instructs them gently by asking them. It's a wonderful example to our pastors and elders here that, that Christian leadership should be joyful and gentle. Yeah, that doesn't mean shying away from the truth. But we gently present the truth of Jesus Christ and gently shepherd God's people. We should rejoice in what we see God doing in the lives of members here. And we should gently instruct God's people in the truth. And 1 Peter 5 says that elders are to be an example to Christians, to the church. So as much as that's a call for elders, I think it's a call for all the members of this church. We should rejoice in what God is doing in this church. You should look for evidence of God's grace in the lives of one another. In fact, a way to encourage one another, uh, we've said this before, is not simply to pat someone on the back and say, good job. It's good to do that. But those people around you, you see in the life of this church, look for evidence of God's grace in their lives. Point out to them ways that you see the Holy Spirit bring about fruit in their lives. And as we guard one another and appropriately show concern for one another in our spiritual walk, we should do that in a way that's gentle. We should gently and lovingly be committed to shepherding one another. Wonderful passage for us to consider what Christian ministry looks like. Well, in verse 5 and in verse 6, we see that loving truth and loving one another must not be separated. So John wasn't coming up with his own commands. He was passing on what he heard from Jesus. He says there in verse 5 that he's not writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, meaning from Jesus, when he established the church by resurrecting from the dead. This is a command these Christians have heard since they first started following Jesus. And this command there at the end of verse 5, that we love one another, That's the commandment he's reminding them of, the importance of the witness of the local church in loving one another. Jesus commands his disciples to love one another. That's how people will know that we follow Jesus, that we demonstrate a love for one another. Uh, Just a few moments ago in our pastoral prayer, I I talked about us and, and asked the Lord to help us to build relationships outside of our friend groups and outside of our life stage. And and the reason why, as a church, one of the reasons why we we don't organize ministry here by life stage is because most of us tend to hang out with people in our life stage 
on our own. We don't need the church to organize that for us. That tends to happen pretty naturally. A lot of times what we need to be intentional about is reaching out to people who don't have the same common interests as us or aren't in the same life stage as us. And if church membership means something, meaning that we're living in a covenant fellowship together, it means that we would have a concern broadly in the life of this church. It doesn't mean that you can be friends with every single member here, over 300 members of this church, but it does mean that you can show kindness and show concern and pray through the membership directory and seek to introduce yourself to other members of this church after the service, seek to initiate towards others, because we want to demonstrate this love that all of God's people have for one another. Well, what is love? Verse 6 Brief definition, and this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. Simply put, love is walking in obedience to God's commands. You understand that Christians are the only ones who are going to define love in that way. We've been changed. So at the moment of your conversion, when God saved you, when He led you to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, we understand that all who put their faith in Jesus Christ obedience to God's Word does follow. We're the only ones who are going to find love like this because the Bible is the only place you're going to go that sees love defined as obedience to God's commands. Love is shaped by the truth of God's Word, His commands in the Bible. Love is informed by God's commands in the Bible. And consider how different this definition is than how our surrounding culture defines love. Our culture often defines love more as emotion. Nothing wrong with emotion. We should have emotion when we love one another. If you love somebody, there should be some kind of warmness and and kindness that comes from your heart. But what about when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, those opposed to the church? You, You might not have warm, fuzzy feelings, but you're still called to act in a loving way. So the culture often defines love more as emotion, but the Bible places love in the sphere of action. I was together with a, a small group of men in our church this past week. We're reading a, a book about being a husband and, and wonderful scriptural principles there and how to apply it. And this small group of men we went through this week considering in the chapter how love is fundamentally a verb in the Bible. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that may be a chapter you think about when you hear the word love, and you go through verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and everything there used to describe love is a verb. Love is patient. That's actually a verb because in the Greek, that means to be patient. Love is kind, to be kind, verb. Love does not envy or boast, verb. Love is not arrogant, like to be arrogant or to be rude, verb. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, verb. Believes all things, verb. Hopes all things, verb. Endures all things, verb. I think you get the picture here. Love is located primarily in the sphere of action. That means that we're called to take the step to love one another. It doesn't mean that emotion is unimportant. Again, as you take those steps, as you take those actions towards other people and start to show kindness, you should see emotion start to follow, whether that's in your marriage, whether that's here in the relationships with other church members, whether that's with a family member, 
you have a difficult relationship with, or even a coworker or a boss, taking the step to show those verbs, that's again walking in obedience to God, that expresses love. So if you keep tracking with the flow of this passage, you come full circle. So John has this like circular logic. What is his command? Verse 5 tells us that you walk in love. Well, what is love? Verse 6, that you walk in his commands. It's kind of circular. Walk in love, walk in his commands. Walk in love, walk in his commands. It's a circular pattern of the Christian life. Think about this. Our time in the words, our time in God's word, this morning hearing the word, it should spur us on to love and good deeds. And as we express love and act in loving ways and obedience, that should press us back to the Bible to learn more about God and what He's done in Jesus. You see, you keep coming back to God's Word the more that you walk in obedience to Him. Well, I wonder what are some ways that we might be tempted to separate truth and love. It's certainly true that sometimes those who know the truth of God's Word and speak it don't do it in a manner that's loving. It should be particularly stand out to us if you have good theology, but you're not loving. What good is an education if it doesn't demonstrate the love of Jesus? What good is it to, to know all of these wonderful principles, but not to display the wonders of God's love in your words and in your actions. We should beware of that. True knowledge of God's Word will be demonstrated in loving God and loving others. But there's also another ditch that sometimes suggests that the truth is unloving. And think about how that affects our Christian witness. Our culture may think that unless you say that all religions are the same, that everyone is going to heaven when they die. Well, if you don't say anything besides that, well, then you're not loving. If you say that Jesus is the only way to God, the only way to have your sins forgiven, well, that sounds arrogant, rude. That's not loving, is what a cult, the culture would have us believe. Unless you believe that someone can marry whomever they want to marry. Unless you affirm a homosexual lifestyle unless you affirm attempting to change your gender, well, then, Christians, you're not loving, and you're the problem in society, and you're the ones that are holding back progress. That's the lies of our culture, trying to separate truth and love. And the reason that's not compelling to us as Christians, and if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to hear me clearly, the reason that argument and that social pressure is not compelling to us as Christians is because we understand that we do not have the authority to edit God's Word. It doesn't need to be edited. God spoke, and we need our lives conformed to His Word. And so we're in a tough situation when you're asking us to change the truth or you're telling us implicitly that if we just take this off of the sinless, then we'll be okay in society. You have to understand we don't want to do that, and we don't have the authority to do that. We love everyone. We have reason from God's Word to understand that every human being should be treated with dignity and respect. I would be shocked if I heard of any member of this church who operated in the workplace in a way that, wasn't unloving as a, that was unloving as a pattern. 
I'd be shocked if I heard any member of this church was acting in a pattern of unloving words and behavior. We care about bullying. We care about threats. We care about all those things. But we also care about the truth of God's Word. In fact, we understand we can't possibly love people apart from the truth of God's Word. And Christian, you need to understand this. You may think, well, as long as I speak the truth in a loving way, I'm going to be accepted. And sadly, that's not always the case. Jesus told us that if they hated him, they will hate us too. No one spoke the truth in love better than Jesus did. He was crucified for it. So we must not be surprised if we face persecution. We need to be careful in how we engage and speak and make sure we're careful to speak the truth in love. But don't think that that's kind of the the fail-safe, time-tested way for us to be accepted by the culture around us. At the same time, while we should aim to speak the truth and love, and while some people will persecute us for it, how will the world around us know the truth if we're not willing to share it? How will they know the truth of God's Word if we won't proclaim it? And we need to be reminded there will be some who will hear the truth about God and Jesus, the truth about themselves as sinners, and they will receive it joyfully and put their faith in Jesus. In fact, doesn't that represent the membership of this church? Every member of this church, upon profession of your repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ, professing the truth about Jesus, that He is the sinless Savior who laid down His life to die and pay for your sins, and the truth about you, that you are sinful and there's nothing you could do on your own to repay God the debt you owe Him because of your sin, the truth about God and the truth about yourself professed, that's your testimony as a member of this church. There will be some who will hear and will come to know Jesus as we speak the truth. Christian author Rosaria Butterfield, she's one of those people. Maybe you're familiar with her, her her book that she's known for, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, an English Professor's Journey into the Christian Faith. She shares in that book about how for nearly a decade, she lived as an openly lesbian activist. She was a professor of English at Syracuse University. And she openly advocated for a lesbian lifestyle. At one point, she wrote an article to her local newspaper criticizing the evangelical organization Promise Keepers, if you remember them back in the 1990s. And a pastor of a local church there in Syracuse noticed that letter and wrote a letter to her inviting her to dinner with him and his wife to discuss this more. The subsequent friendship that developed from that dinner with that pastor and his wife, led two years later to Rosaria Butterfield putting her faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of her sin to follow Jesus. She now lives in Durham, North Carolina, with her husband, Kent Butterfield, who is a pastor. They live there with their, uh, and their children are grown now. Following her conversion, she developed a ministry to college students and frequently spoke on campus. And I read a story that she told about one of her speaking engagements that helps us know about the truth and love. She told the story of speaking at a large church and sharing the gospel, and she said, afterward, a woman came up to her and told her that she was 75 years old, had been married to another woman for 50 years, had children and grandchildren. Rosaria recounted, then she said something chilling. In a hushed voice, she whispered, I have heard the gospel, and I understand that I may lose everything. Why didn't anyone tell me this before? 
Why did people I love not tell me that I would one day have to choose like this? It's a good question, Rosaria said to herself. Why did not one person tell this dear image bearer that she could not have illicit love and gospel peace at the same time? Why didn't anyone throughout all of these decades tell this woman that sin and Christ cannot abide together? For the cross never makes itself an ally with the sin it must crush. Because Christ took our sin upon Himself and paid the ransom for its dreadful cost. The truth and love are inseparable. And if we're to extend the love of Christ to one another and to a watching world, we must, by God's grace, walk in the truth of His commands. I wonder what that looks like for you this week in your relationships. I wonder how walking in the truth and love would affect your marriage, your parenting, your relationship with your roommates, relationship at work, relationship with those around you who don't know Jesus. Ask God to strengthen you and give you grace to hold to the truth and to walk in love. Well, in verses 7 through 11, let's consider a second way we are to live together as a church. So number two, verses 7 through 11, be on guard for the truth as you love one another. Be on guard for the truth as you love one another. The tone of the letter, it changes in this last portion. Here John gives a warning, he gives a prohibition as he addresses the church about a group of false teachers. And so we see here that as you walk in truth and love, you must be discerning to avoid false teaching. In verse 7, John says that many deceivers have gone out into the world. Now, in the letter of 1 John, he spoke of a group that went out from the church and ended up denying the Christian faith. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he described that group as they went out from us, but they were not of us. I mean, they professed at one time to have faith in Jesus, but then they departed from the gospel and from the church, showing they didn't actually possess a relationship with Jesus. John's saying this group had a departure from Jesus that led to a departure from the church, yet this group still called themselves Christians. It's not like they left and started calling themselves atheists. They were still calling themselves Christians, and they were actively trying to deceive Christians and get people in churches to follow their teaching. So false teaching is going to take on the name of Jesus, but depart from the gospel. We see in verse 7, the false teachers that came into their town were denying the humanity of Jesus. They were denying the, the incarnation that Jesus was fully God and became fully man, fully God and fully man. He was the God-man. These deceivers, they do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. That's the false teaching there in verse 7. Now, the test of a Christian teacher is what do they teach about Jesus? If they deny Jesus coming in the flesh, they are a false teacher. Probably more common in our day is someone denying that Jesus is divine, fully God. Not a lot of people are going to tussle with you. Even like college students, your religion professors who may call themselves Christians, they're not going to tussle with you over Jesus being a man. They're probably going to debate you over, is Jesus really God? Right? But either way, you take away from Jesus there, that is false 
teaching. Now that word, uh, at the end of verse 7, he says, if, if they deny Jesus coming in the flesh, they're a false teacher. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Antichrist means against Christ, against the person of Jesus Christ, against the work of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and getting up from the dead. Now, John is not suggesting these teachers here were the personal antichrist written about in the book of Revelation, but rather that these teachers take on the character and posture of that antichrist in Revelation as they oppose Jesus and his teaching. I think what he's saying is the spirit of the antichrist is already in the world and at work through false teachers like this who oppose Jesus through their false teaching. So again, these teachers denied that God became a man and took on flesh. That's not merely a mistake. That's not merely an error. That's not merely doctrinal disagreement. That is a denial. False teaching, it denies and it distorts the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in the pages of the Bible. And it's important to understand why this matters so deeply to John, why it would compel him to write this brief letter that would be preserved for you and I to read thousands of years later. You see, if you deny who Jesus is as the Son of God, then the significance of His finished work at the cross is lost and rejected. The cross and the empty tomb will be seen as meaningless if you deny Jesus. You may have heard, and I've told this story before years ago when the Presbyterian Church USA was redoing their hymnal. They wanted to include a song that we'll sing at the end of our time here, In Christ Alone, written by Keith and Kristen Getty. And they wanted to change some of the lyrics, but you have to get the writer's permission to change lyrics and print them in a hymnal. And the, and the lyrics that Keith and Kristen Getty wrote of, On the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, they wanted to change that in the hymnal, the PCUSA did. And they wanted to say instead, on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. I think that's true. The love of God was demonstrated, Romans chapter 5 eight. that's true. But why would there need to be a change from the wrath of God being satisfied to the love of God being magnified? I think if you look at their doctrine and where they've gone now and why the PCA and others split away from them years ago is because going away from teaching about Jesus and his substitutionary atonement, I mean, him dying on the cross in the place of sinners, that his death was an act of satisfying God's holy wrath against sin. They didn't want to talk about sin. They didn't want to talk about judgment. They wanted to talk about love and the love of God being magnified. We talk about truth and love. We talk about love and justice. We don't pick and choose who God is. That's called fashioning an idol. We look to the pages of the Bible. And we see who God has revealed himself to be, and we should marvel at who he's revealed himself to be. Well, the situation here in 2 John was that a group that was part of the church who said they were Christians, they left because they claimed to have some secret insight from God that Jesus is not really the Christ. And what they did, they created a different Jesus. And when you have a different Jesus, you have a different God, and you end up with an entirely different religion. That's why John says that any teacher denying that Jesus is the Messiah is an antichrist. They oppose Christ and teach a false gospel. 
Now, it's important to observe in the pages of the Bible that attacks on the church, they come from both outside the church and inside the church. Sometimes we may be so concerned about attacks from outside the church, meaning persecution, that we don't pay attention that throughout the New Testament letters, there are attacks inside the church, division and false teaching. We should be concerned about both of of those. False teaching happens inside the walls of the church. And I've heard it put like this, the addition or subtraction, so the, the mathematics of false teaching. What it typically does, it adds or it subtracts. False teaching typically, it subtracts from who Jesus is, denying that Jesus was either fully God or fully man. And false teaching also adds. It adds to the Bible, suggesting the Bible is not good enough to be an authority, and it adds another authority outside of the Bible. That could be a human structure, like church tradition, so it could look really like positive and interesting, but still, pointing to some authority that exists outside of the Bible. It could be saying the Bible's not enough, we need science plus the Bible, and how can you possibly believe what's in Genesis because what we've seen from science, it could be what I think most common in our day is, is the authority of self, that the self is an authority, and therefore the Bible is not needed. That's at the, the heart of the discussion on gender. The Bible says that God created people, human beings, male or female, that He decided who we are. He was good and loving and giving us men and women and making you either a man or a woman. But our society would say, well, you are the authority to determine who you want to be. It's going outside of the Bible and establishing another source of authority. The problem is when you add to the Bible and subtract from Jesus, essential truths about Christianity are changed and ultimately denied. And when you change essential parts of the gospel, you lose the gospel and you end up with a false gospel. Well, as an apostle, John knew that Jesus came in the flesh. He was an eyewitness to Jesus coming in the flesh. He was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He was an eyewitness to the death of Jesus. And he was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He personally saw all of those things. He had touched the very flesh of Jesus, both before his death and after his resurrection. He passed on what he had seen and what he had heard, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knew the importance of guarding against this false teaching. You see, Jesus coming in the flesh is an essential truth of our faith because Christians understand Jesus indeed came in the flesh to lay down that flesh. You see, what they were teaching, those false teachers, if Jesus didn't come in the body, he couldn't have laid down that body. And if he didn't lay down that body, then he didn't sacrifice himself for sin, meaning your sins aren't forgiven. If Jesus didn't lay down his body, no blood, no forgiveness. But because Jesus, fully God, fully man, he came in the flesh, he came down to earth, he came to die and to save, to lay his life down, to purchase a people for God through His blood shed on the cross, resurrecting from the dead, offering new life to anyone who would trust in Him. Because Jesus came in the flesh and laid down that flesh and was resurrected bodily in the flesh, Christians, if you put your faith in Jesus, you have assurance that your sins are forgiven. You have assurance that your life is now found in God through Jesus Christ and that you'll be with Him forever. You see, they needed to abide in the teaching they received from John that was passed on by Jesus himself, not this new teaching coming from this new group. 
Now, the two main warnings or instructions that John gave them there in verse 8, watch yourselves. They needed to be alert. It, it involved like continually being alert, discerning, watchful for false teaching. The language, it pictures a continual watch, like a watchman. Years ago when I lived on Capitol Hill, uh, there was Capitol Police stationed 24 hours a day, seven days a week at the top of my neighborhood. So you couldn't get onto the Capitol complex without passing them. They were armed, heavily armed. Many of them, they stood right beside a gate that could, a button could be pressed and uh, this shield would come up, keeping you from driving onto the Capitol complex. They would do it just in a heartbeat. And anytime like a city bus came past these Capitol police officers, the city bus even had to stop and show identification to make sure they indeed were a city bus driver before they could drive a vehicle of that size onto the Capitol complex. I would often drive by them in 100 degree weather in the summer and in freezing bitter cold weather of 10 degrees in the winter and think to myself, that's a tough job. 99.9% of your job is really just standing there. Maybe the occasional bus to check. But that 0.1% of the job is what they're there for. And it happened in my time there. One time when there was a car that rammed the White House gate and went on the loose in D.C. and came up the hill trying to enter the Capitol Hill neighborhood, that's when the Capitol Hill police had to be ready. 99.9% of their job, just normal life, people passing by, I was driving by in my car, going by with my kids, that 0.1% of the time is why they were stationed on a continual watch. That's a lot of what it looks like in the Christian life about guarding. Most life in the church is not going to be filled with false teaching. You're going to hear good teaching, Lord willing, here about God's Word and the truth about Jesus. Our statement of faith is outlining what you should expect to normally hear. But I think that small percentage of the time where false teaching does come into the church, whether it comes in first through books that people are reading or podcasts that are listening to or a conference speaker they went and heard that starts to mesmerize people, we must be on the guard for those things. They matter if they start to, help us to, or start to tempt us to deny essential truths about Christianity. That's why John says, the key verse, watch yourselves. And he's speaking to the whole church here, yourselves, not just the responsibility of you kind of guarding yourself, but the whole church guarding one another. It's what's lined out in our church covenant. We have committed to working together to maintain a faithful evangelical ministry in this church by supporting and upholding the preaching of the Bible. Verse 8 is where we get that from. And a basic way to support and uphold the preaching of the Bible in our church is to be present. It's to regularly be present, to regularly give yourself to sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's Word, to be discerning. To make sure that everything that's taught here, whether it's, it's here from the pulpit or in our children's ministries or student ministries or equipping hours or any small groups, that it lines up with the truth of God's Word. In verse 8, we see what was at stake was their future reward, which I think really means losing ground spiritually. That happens through false doctrine being taught. In verse 9, we see another warning here that everyone who goes on ahead, pay attention to that. That language, everyone who goes on ahead, John was likely using the language of these false teachers. They had a progressive teaching, a teaching that kind of went ahead of the Bible. And the problem with going on ahead is you leave the gospel behind. False teachers will not stay within the limits of God's Word. They go ahead. And we've seen this type of progression in the recent past, and we've also seen it in the present in American evangelical churches. It's happened in the recent past through 
through science, well, with scientific discovery, we, we progress. We can move on ahead from what we see in the Bible. This moving on ahead happens in sexual ethics. It happens in desire for material blessings. What this has looked like, some will say, well, you can't take the Bible literally. literally. We have scientific discovery now. We've progressed beyond these thoughts, ancient thoughts in the Bible. Some people would look at the Bible and say we've progressed in our understanding of sexuality and gender, and you can't use the Bible as your source for sexual ethics. John says, don't go ahead of the Bible. Abide. That word abide means remain. Remain in the truth of God's Word. This is God's Word for all people, all time, all cultures, all civilizations. This is truth. We don't invent truth. We receive it. And God has told us what we need to know to worship Him and to love Him and to serve Him and to love one another. His second area of instruction there in verse 10, what do you do when you come across these false teachers? Verse 10, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. And you might think, well, how is that loving? Not inviting him into your house, not, not greeting them. Well, keep in mind, this is written to a church. Back then, churches didn't meet in buildings like this. They met in houses. I think simply put, the instruction is don't let them come in and teach that. Guard the pulpit. Guard the teaching. I think it also certainly spoke to individuals about not showing hospitality and therefore supporting the work of these false teachers. It's given to a local church telling them, don't do anything that would cause you to take part in their wicked works. If you want to love one another, guard one another for true teaching in the gospel. Well, consider, brother and sister, how you can be watchful and not receive false teaching. Consider the books you read. Every book we have downstairs for you, is, that's books we recommend. There's plenty of good books we don't have down there. We're not trying to stock like a, a regular bookstore with tons and tons of houses. There's plenty of books not on there that are wonderful things for you to read. But there are some books we would not put on this table because we think they get to a place of false teaching. And if you ever have any questions about that, talk to another member of this church, talk to one of our elders. If you're reading something and wondering, is, this doesn't sound right, we'd love to talk with you more about that. Consider the podcasts you listen to, the conferences you attend. Even consider the missionaries that we support. We want to support those who go out preaching the biblical gospel. So we're careful that we only support missionaries that could be members of this church. You see, loving one another in the church, it involves guarding each other in the truth of God's Word. And remember the assurance there in verse 9, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Well, following Jesus is a pursuit of truth and love because truth and love is a person, Jesus. Following Jesus is a pursuit of truth and love because Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the greatest demonstration of God's love. The greatest demonstration of, of God's love the world has ever seen found in Jesus. And truth found in Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is truth. Jesus is, is love. He demonstrated that love by laying his life down and dying on the cross to pay for sin. In John 3, 16, we see Jesus was God's demonstration of love. For God so what? Loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If we are to love like Jesus, we must walk in the truth. If we are to look like Jesus, 
We must walk in truth and love. And our Christian life is a pursuit of truth and love because that's who Jesus is. And may we fix our eyes more on Him. Let's pray. Father, may we be reminded that our hope is found only in Jesus, our life is found in Him, and may you instruct us this morning from your word how we could walk in the truth and walk in love together. Help us to be those who rejoice in the truth, who rejoice in the truth of what you've done for us through your son Jesus, and help us to be those that as we hear the truth of your word, walk in a way that's loving towards one another. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.